0: But I prefer a man who lives and gives expensive jewels. A kiss of the hand
1: may be quite a It's the Book and Film Globe podcast, and I'm your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV, and much more. You're going to take your medicine this week, and you're going to like it. We're going to have a fantastic roundtable about trends in censorship, featuring Book and Film Globe contributors Sharon Vane and Michael Washburn. And we're also going to talk about the new Marilyn Monroe sort of biopic, Blonde, now airing on Netflix and uh, in selective theaters. And also, Bros, a new uh, gay romantic comedy from comedian Billy Eichner. Contributor Matthew Ehrlich will be here to discuss both of those films with me, and we're gonna talk about blonde right after this breathy musical interlude.
0: Then may come a time when a a lawyer,
2: diamonds are a girl's best friend. There may come a time The
1: much talked about Marilyn Monroe biopic. Blonde has appeared on screens and on Netflix and Matthew Ehrlich was brave enough to go to the movie theater to see Blonde and you know I gotta be honest Matthew you know after I was gonna watch this and then after reading your review I was I was a lot less interested so Blonde is a sounds like a, a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is quite a lot. Um, I have to say though, um, first off, Anna de Armas is amazing in it. She looks just like Marilyn. She sounds just like Marilyn. Um, there was talk of a Cuban accent kind of sneaking through. I really didn't notice it while I was watching. You really get wrapped up in her performance. Um, and it's really fantastic and I'm really looking forward to, um, seeing more from this actress. Um, the, the, the movie is a huge train wreck in terms of what it's trying to say about Marilyn Monroe. Um, It's incredibly um, ponderous and sadistic. Um, And I'm not really quite sure what the point was. I heard some rumors that they delayed production or they delayed release because um, it was too long. And I swear people were walking out of the movie because it was just so long. I can't believe that what I was watching was actually the re-edit.
1: Now we all know the contours of Marilyn Monroe's story, you know, she was born Norma Jean Baker and she was a sort of a, almost an, not quite an innocent farm girl, but the, that's that type of person who went to Hollywood and then became a platinum blonde, um, corrupted by fame, abused by men, addicted to pills, et cetera, et cetera. That's the sort of the classic, uh, contours of the Marilyn Monroe story. But I feel like from your description, this movie takes it way over the top and that sort of the some of the more um, subtle elements of Marilyn Monroe's persona and personality just get completely obscured.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, they, they show her uh, early life. She's, she's raised by this mentally ill mother. Um, and, you know, she's committed to a hospital. The mother's committed to a hospital. And, you know, young Norma Jean is taken to an orphanage. And then all of a sudden they cut to her face on various magazines of, you know, on various pinup magazines. Um, And then she's in Hollywood and she gets a part in a film. And it almost kind of implies that, Marilyn Monroe has that, that Norma Jean Baker has no hand in her own career, that it all just happened to her. Um, you know, someone aimed a camera at her one day and all of a sudden she became this budding movie star because these men uh, made it happen. Um, right. And as what it ignores it, is the fact that, sorry.
1: Well, as you pointed out in your review, you know, she had her, she had her, she made her choice. You know, she chose to go to Hollywood. Yeah.
0: And I mean, you could argue that, you know, she was desperate for attention, that she wanted to be someone because of her horrible upbringing, that she was in a lot of pain, et cetera. But, um, you know, the movie literally makes it look as though she's just kind of sleepwalking through this career that other people have chosen for her.
1: And that just simply isn't the case. I mean, she obviously, obviously, you know, she's a movie star. I mean, she was not, she was not a, uh, you know, she never really had a career as a stage actress. She always was sort of a glamorous movie star, and, and I, I mean, does does it cover some of the highlights of her career? You know, she she famously made uh, a cameo appearance in All About Eve and got a lot of attention for herself there. I mean, I know that you know, I know they recreate the uh, the gentlemen prefer blondes, diamonds are a girl best girl's best friend sequence, but do, do they really you know focus on her as an actress, or is it all just sort of a um, is it all just sort of a, a catalog of abuse?
0: They, um, they kind of take, you know, they do recreate these, um, these scenes, and I think they do it through AI, for instance, I noticed in the credits that Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon are actually listed as actors in the movie, because they took scenes from Some Like It Hot and actually inserted her in there. Um, And it does give you they've, they've, they've sort of lovingly recreated certain, you know, photographs that we've seen of Marilyn Monroe when she's sort of cavorting on the beach with Arthur Miller Um, visually it's really stunning they really get that time period the 1950s Um, but it just goes on and on and on right
1: so and there's not I guess there's not much to recommend other than Anna de Armas's performance
0: yeah which is fantastic again yes
1: all right. Well but, that's I,
0: it. I, you know, we all know how we all know how it ends, so <laughs> there you go.
1: Does, does JFK play a part? Do they bring that stuff in at all?
0: Yeah, it's a very curious uh scene. Toward the end, they kind of um men drag her, literally, you know, they show her feet not touching the floor. Uh Secret Service men drag her to JFK's hotel room where he just kind of um I don't know if it's if you'd call it a rape, but it just, he sort of forces herself. uh, There's like, you know, there's just this sort of brutal sex scene that just does not look enjoyable at all for either of them. Um, And then she's taken out of there by the secret service. And then there's a sequence that seems to suggest, and I wasn't quite sure if I'm right or not, that either she is fantasizing, you know, she's having a paranoid fantasy or this really happened where, because she's, had JFK's love child or she's conceived of his love child they force her to have she's carried off and an abortion is performed upon her against her will which is by the way the second abortion that is performed upon her Um, and they have a POV of her vagina as the machine draws near her to perform the abortion
1: the Marilyn Monroe story (laughs) it wasn't
0: all glamour
1: I guess not, my god Alright, well Blonde is on Netflix now uh, Based on the novel Carol Oates herself, always a fount Of, uh, of wit and good humor And, and optimism uh, Matthew, thank you so much Let's have you back a little bit thank later you. in the show To talk about a um, I would say a slightly more upbeat picture uh, Billy Eichner's Bros We'll talk to you later Slightly <laughs> Every so often on the Book and Film Globe podcast, we have to eat our vegetables and talk about censorship. It's one of our specialty topics on Book and Film Globe, and it's in the news yet again, being that Banned Books Week has just passed. And I, uh, we ran a couple of pieces about Banned Books Week during Banned Books Week. Uh, one of them was written by frequent contributor Sharon Bain, and the other one was written by frequent contributor Michael Washburn and in a special treat. They are both here with me to talk about their pieces and to talk about the state of censorship in general. Hello.
3: Hello. Thanks for having us on.
1: Thanks very much for hosting us. All right. So that was obviously that was Sharon first and then Michael talking. So, Sharon, I wanted to start with your piece called Libraries Closing Under Threat. There's been a trend of people calling bomb threats into libraries, into public libraries.
3: Yeah, it's um, it's actually email threats that have been uh, happening most recently. And in fact, even since our piece ran, um, things have gotten even worse to the point where the American Library Association yesterday um, wrote a letter of concern to the FBI regarding um, threats of violence in libraries. Um, what we saw last week during banned books week was uh, several uh, municipalities had to close their branches, um, Denver, Nashville, Fort Worth. Um, earlier than last week, Salt Lake City had threats as well. Um, and these would typically take the form of an email, or emails threatening that there was a bomb in one of the branches and out of an abundance of caution, you know, they they would have to close the branches for the day and have the police come out and nothing was ever found, but the proximity to what's been happening in censorship, um, certainly over the last few weeks and last few months, it's hard to ignore.
1: Well, for sure. I mean, there's no doubt that, um, The uh, the heat has turned up, I I guess, you know, and and there's also no doubt that libraries should close out of an abundance of caution, just like schools should if they get some sort of bomb threat or threat of violence. I'm just I'm I I can't wrap my head around what would motivate someone to threaten to bomb a library. You know what is I mean, you might not like what they're what they're putting front and center or what they're they're reading at story hour or whatever. But to me, it, it boggles the mind that this would happen.
3: Well, it's such an escalation. I think, to your point, we've certainly seen lots of complaints from parents and from conservative groups about um, certain titles or certain books being available and what's appropriate and what's not. But certainly, it's a massive step over the line to go from, I don't like this book, to I'm going to threaten to bomb your place of employment. Um, And, you know, this is just kind of the high profile stuff. Um, Librarians are reporting on Twitter and to their professional organizations that um, they're regularly receiving, you know, threatening calls. You know, some have even lost their jobs over some of these same issues. People are being followed um, from uh, the branches to their cars. I mean, it's, it, it does boggle the mind that we have reached the point in this discourse and I hesitate to call it that, that people are being, they're being threatened with violence over what books they stock or what programs they have.
1: Agreed. Okay. And I want to switch over to Michael, um, who I would say you know, writes about censorship from a more, um, Conservative point of view, uh, and you know, and that's we cover all um, manner of censorship on the site. And you know, Michael wrote a piece about Banned Books Week uh, at Miami Dade College. And Michael, you had some criticisms over what they actually considered banned books or what they prioritized.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say that. I quickly fell in love with the concept of Banned Books Week. But looking at the execution of it, looking at what the organizers actually did, they really have a strong tendency to feature works written from a certain political standpoint. And this is not just on Miami-Dade College, because they've done this every year since the event's inception in 1982. That's my understanding. This is more the American Library Association and this database that their Office of Intellectual Freedom has compiled, which provides the basis for lists of works that are going to be featured not just at Miami-Dade, but at participating venues generally. And if you look at the list for this year, we've got 10 books. And what they have in common is they are written from a very for want of a better term, I know people object to this term, from a very woke standpoint, and they have a certain sociopolitical agenda. And they uh, are all about gender diversity and gender identity and Black Lives Matter kind of sensibility. And they some of them feature anti-police rhetoric. And these are the kinds of books that are featured And I'm not saying that you shouldn't advance the freedom to publish books like these. You certainly should, because I am a free speech absolutist, and I am a very passionate defender of free speech, and I'm against censorship, regardless of who's practicing it and who the target of it may be. But if you're going to do an event like this, you should acknowledge the fact that censorship hurts a lot of people, and some of them happen to be the readers and or the authors of books that contravene certain politically correct sensibilities in 2022. So this year's list of 10 books is really not very diverse. In fact, it's the opposite of diverse. In the list from the prior year, which was a list for 2020 that was the basis for the 2021 event, there was a little more variety, and it was acknowledged that John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men and Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird are among the books that have been suppressed.
1: Right. Well, you, well, you talk about it in your piece how you know when you used to think of lists of banned books, it would be Brave New World, Of Mice and Men, To Kill a Mockingbird, Huckleberry Finn, and then you know the only the only um, books on this year's list that have been on a lot of lists in years past is a work by Sherman Alexie, uh, a writer who's been around for quite a while, and The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which has been getting challenged since the year it was published um in the 19 in the 1970s. So, you know, your argument is that in some of these classic uh censored books, books that have been on censorship lists for a, for a while um are have kind of fallen out of vogue in some ways.
2: They've yeah. fallen out of vogue and some people Sorry, go ahead.
1: I was, was going to say fallen out of vogue in that sense. I mean, they're still widely read if anything is. Mhm.
2: Yes, but some people are undertaking this retroactive editing and culling of books published in past decades. And if they are written from a standpoint or if they contain certain terms and phrases that are considered outdated or not sensitive enough, then they should be banned. That's the argument that we're hearing. And I think that's a deeply pernicious argument. It's based on ever evolving standards and who's to say that we won't be judged at some time in the future, even though we think that we're speaking and acting in good faith. It's just a very kind of questionable way to go about determining what is suitable for curricula and schools and libraries. And so, yes, certain classic, and as you said, otherwise very beloved works of literature have been challenged and have been suppressed according to these criteria.
1: So Sharon, are, are the, um, I'm, I think I know the answer to this, but are the threats to libraries and librarians and, and, and the like you know, being issued because of to kill them? They're talking to kill a mockingbird or of mice and men. Um, or, you know, is is it more of the sort of a you know, new wave of books that Michael is talking about?
3: Well, I mean, I think even though authorities have not um, come out and said we can definitely trace these bomb threats to the rise in book banning it's hard to you know not be not read the news and see here's what's happening in libraries here's what's also happening in school boards in classrooms um in state government um laws being passed to uh ban not just books but lessons and conversation around um certain topics so certainly um i think something like 40% 40% of the challenges that have happened with books this past year um, have been with books dealing with the LGBTQ theme. Another um, significant percentage deal with themes and authors um, uh, who are, um, you know, authors of color or themes of racism, um, that sort of thing. So I would argue that um, the banned book list really is sort of a snapshot of what is happening each year. And I don't think it's curated by the American Library Association. I think they are taking what the the reports that they're getting, and I know they're constantly urging people to report when they've had a challenge so they can get an accurate snapshot of what's going on. Um, five years ago, the books were different. Um, this year, these are the kinds of books that are causing an out, an uproar and a furor. And I would argue that that's the bigger issue here. I mean, I hear what you're saying and I don't disagree that there's a conversation to be had around to kill a mockingbird being, you know, pulled from shelves or pulled from lessons. And is this a book that we need to, you know, just have on the reading list forever? Or is it a book we can read in concert with another book? Is it time to retire it? Um, you know, that's a different kind of curriculum conversation. But I think to pretend or, or to, to to charge that this list is somehow politically motivated feels like you're feels like not quite accurate. All right, to so, me. So Michael, let me
1: ask you a question. So uh, you know, you're a free speech absolutist, and I know that you agree that you know book, books like these should be published. But I hear arguments from uh, people I know who are who are you know not as conservative as you that you know schools shouldn't be teaching genderqueer or lawn boy or some of these other books that are like uh, controversial and are being continually challenged. You know, what um, a do you agree that these books shouldn't be taught at school, and 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 b like where is this, um, you know, sort of a ratcheted up violent rhetoric coming from? It seems like way, um, you know, way sort of out of line with what is act with the if there is a problem with the problem.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I I would like to address that, Neil. Can I briefly respond to Sharon and yeah. then take up that question? Yeah, of course. Okay, so Sharon, I think. You express your point well, but I just want to read you a very brief quotation from the website of the Office for Intellectual Freedom of the ALA. It says, the lists are based on information from media stories and voluntary reports sent to OIF from communities across the U.S., which suggests to me that there really is a fair amount of subjectivity here based on information from media stories means, well, someone at the Office of for Intellectual Freedom is reading media stories and saying, hey, there's a report of this library that uh, received a threat or a demand not to carry a certain book. And then you have these voluntary reports coming in, but we're not told from whom. And even the Office for Intellectual Freedom acknowledges that The list that they have compiled is not comprehensive and I really do think that a fair amount of subjectivity comes into it and it doesn't present real necessarily a balanced picture or at least without more information we can't assume that it does so 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 I I think it is subjective and I also I want to respond to Neil's point and also uh, Sharon raised this point too yes there are these incidents where libraries have received threats look It's indefensible. For someone to make a a bomb threat against a library is a reprehensible tactic, and it's totally indefensible. But I ask you, can you name actual incidents where a library was bombed for carrying a certain book? I think that sometimes people do this kind of thing as a hoax. I'm not defending it. It's a horrible, reprehensible, and criminal thing to do but it's not the same thing as committing an act of violence.
1: Yeah, but and, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, yes, we cannot name an instance uh, in the current wave where a library has been bombed, but until a few months ago, we couldn't name an instance where a library was receiving a bomb threat or having to close because they have uh, you know some LBGTQ books on the shelves or in one case that Sharon mentioned because they had some sort of drag queen story hour. Now, you could argue that maybe – you know, libraries shouldn't be having drag queen story hours for 10 year olds. That's another issue. But, you know, is, is, you know, is that really a reason to threaten violence? Right. So, you know, we, we have to like, um, we have to think about that. I I mean, I think you both bring up really good points. I, I think that the, uh, you know, the world, this is mostly about kids literature and what kids are reading. It's been highly politicized and uh, the list has changed kind of overnight. And that change has been, um, startling to some people um and, and on the other hand you know um the world is changing and li- and, and literature for kids is changing so we just kind of have to adapt to that
3: well, well and i think it, okay. I, I, sure, it, it I think it reflects it, it just reflects what is going on out there in the general discourse i mean you know we uh you know, saw sort of the the start of this rise. I mean, really, kind of took, started taking place in Texas, um, north of Austin, where I live, where it started to be these groups of parents, and you know, we don't like this book or we don't like that book. And you know, a year later, we're seeing incredibly well organized groups of parents under you know the umbrella of Moms for Liberty and other groups like that, who are you know. Filing complaints and um, getting uh, candidates elected to school boards so they can change policies. Um, Books are being pulled out of classrooms, off the shelves, without following any sort of process whatsoever. I mean, it really, it's, it's like the Wild West out there, and it's causing a ripple effect. We've also seen librarians reporting and teachers reporting kind of self-censorship, where they're like, well, I'm not going to include that book because I do not feel like dealing with the complaints from those parents. So it's having those ripple effects of you don't even need to have a parent complaint to see a book disappear, or take a lower um, you know, level of importance in the curriculum. Um, you see how widespread that impact is.
1: Michael, do you think this stuff should be taught in schools or in libraries or put in libraries? <laughs>
2: I think that there are questions of age appropriateness that come up, and that is why, although I don't condone book banning at all or pressures on libraries or schools, I think there is a difference between the kind of activity that some of these conservative groups are engaging in and the kind of censorship that the activist left is practicing at the university level and in other settings. Because look, when these parents get together and say, well, we don't want a certain book to be available in libraries, some of them are thinking, is my 10-year-old daughter ready yet for a book about the pleasures of masturbation or, or a book that encourages her to change her gender? And so some of them have that on their mind. And Questions of age appropriateness are complicated, they're not easy to answer, but they are valid questions. Whereas the left wing activist at a university who wants to cancel a course or a curriculum or a professor or a book or a speaker or an idea is saying, I have the intellectual and moral authority to decide what adults should be able to discuss and and what ideas should circulate among adults and what adults should be allowed to say and to write in print and online. And if you think about that, that's a very different proposition from the middle American parent who is concerned about what his or her child might be ready for.
1: I agree that it's a different proposition, and I I would argue that it's – I, and I don't. I think that uh, I think that freedom of speech should be absolute across the board, pretty much for, for people of all ages. You know, but I I, I think that they're two slightly different issues because what you're talking about is more sort of falls under the um, the banner of cancel culture, um, and what Sharon's talking about is just sort of more sort of old fashioned censorship ratcheted up. You know, regardless of that, um, book and film globe continues to cover both cover from both angles. And continues to stand up for free speech and against censorship in all its forms. Do you guys have any other final thoughts, or do you want to um, you want to engage in any uh, any swordplay before we uh, we take off? I thought- no, Go ahead, Sharon first. Go ahead, Sharon first, because Michael. My-
3: oh, I was just going to say, uh, I um, I actually would would agree with your last point, um, uh, Michael, that it is a different conversation around you know what's age appropriate you know, parents can make decisions for their own children about, you know, what they feel like, you know, our kid is ready to handle. Um, from where I sit, I just don't want other parents making decisions for what my kid is able to access in a library, whether that's at the school level, the classroom level, um, understanding that librarians are not putting you know, genderqueer in um, like kindergarten libraries, right? There's there's some uh, curating going on. But I agree with you about the the higher level discussions. I mean, I think um, we see that on a lot of political issues where, um, you know, certainly from where I sit, I, I see a lot of Jewish students not being able to talk about, you know, Israel um, in a way that is a meaningful discourse about what's happening in that region. And um, it's a tough one.
2: Mm-hmm. And the pressures brought to bear on libraries go beyond just whether kids can read a book about gender identity. Look at this whole controversy over Alan Dershowitz publishing a book, and he wants to give a reading at this library in Martha's Vineyard, and they say no. And he is flabbergasted because it is a taxpayer-funded venue. His taxes are supporting the library. And he has his First Amendment rights, and he feels that if Barack Obama published a book and wanted to give a reading there, they would leap at the chance. But they're saying no to Alan Dershowitz because he's a liberal Democrat who nonetheless will stand up for the constitutional rights of Donald Trump or other conservatives when he thinks that they've been violated, as as uh, Dershowitz has said. And so, I mean, you know, there's so many different dimensions to this issue, and I do think there is a difference between questions around age appropriateness and censoring work on ideological grounds, which is increasingly the fate of politically incorrect speakers and, and authors.
1: All right. The one thing we'll all agree on is no more bomb threats to libraries. That's got to stop. So, whoever's listening to this podcast and, and is thinking about calling it a bomb threat to a library, don't do it. Uh, thank you so much, Sharon and Michael, for an excellent and well informed debate.
3: Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for this opportunity.
1: Matthew Ehrlich is back to talk with me about Bros, a new comedy uh, starring and conceived of by Billy Eichner and sort of midwife onto the big screen by by Judd Apatow. Uh, Billy Eichner is a a, um, comedian best known for his YouTube series, Billy on the Street. He did a guest shot on Parks and Recreation. He's done some other things, and this is sort of his his breakout role, his debut, his Judd Apatow sponsored debut. And Matthew uh, saw this movie uh, yesterday, as we speak, as did I, and we're going to talk about Bros. Hello, hi, hello again. So yes, okay. So Bros, you know, this was advertised as the first romantic comedy about gay man written by a gay man and starring an all gay cast. And I guess in that sense, it does. It does. um, It it passes that bill, right? I mean, it does. that, That is exactly what it is.
0: Well, there were some straight people in it, but they were celebrities playing themselves. Deborah Messing is in it. Uh, ben Stiller is in it. Amy Schumer. Uh, Amy Schumer is in it. It's kind of interesting. It, does, it doesn't quite have an all uh, LGBT cast, unless these people have redefined themselves in ways that I don't know. But, you know, Deborah Messing is sort of, you know, she's, got, she's, she's gay royalty. Because, you know.
1: With a will and grace. Right. 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 So, um, but, but the actual characters – are all gay or trans or bi and played by... Right. Uh, Even
0: the straight people are played by gay people. Amanda Barris, for instance, plays um, Aaron's mother.
1: Right. So, all right. So, and Aaron is, well, Aaron is the boyfriend of uh, of Billy Eichner's character, Bobby. So, Right. Know,
0: but they're not really boyfriends. They Remember, they agree to date for three,
1: three months and then revisit. How romantic. All right, let's set this yeah. up. So, Billy Eichner plays a podcaster... Who you know, like all podcasters, becomes uh, extremely successful and wealthy, and then uh, is chosen to head up the um, the first ever LGBTQ plus museum, Museum of History and Culture in located- and Not only
0: that, but as a podcaster, he's often recognized on the street because everyone knows what these podcasters look like. And also, as most podcasters on movies and television shows, it's more like a call in radio show than an actual podcast.
1: Right. But as, and, and that's, well, that's what it's like.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Right. It's so, so glamorous. People often stop me at the grocery store and say, Hey, are you the host of the Book and Film Globe podcast? Like,
0: we all know what Sarah Koenig looks like, right?
1: Yes. she Of course. She says she's so, she's so yeah. glamorous. Anyway, right. all right. So, so that aside, so, so you know, and Billy Eichner is, you know, he is um, a genius with an. An absolutely uncrushable wit, who everyone loves, even though he's kind of a whiny asshole <laughs> in the movie. And uh, and then he and then he hooks up at a club with this really good-looking dude, um, shirtless, good-looking dude named Aaron, played by Luke McFarlane. And uh, they have they have a relationship um, of sorts, and uh, you know, and, and it just kind of it kind of goes from there. And in the meantime. Uh, this this crew of of uh, people are trying to um, plan the opening of this museum. I, I, I would say that's that sums up the, the storyline pretty well, right?
0: Hey guys, it's Bobby Lieber coming to you from the future home of the LGBTQ plus museum. Everyone is really excited and totally getting along.
2: This happens to be Bisexual Awareness Week, and no one has acknowledged
0: it. Lesbian History Month was in March. Nobody said a goddamn thing.
2: Of course, lesbians get a month and we get a week.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, it's not really quite clear exactly how, I mean, usually in the rom-com, the characters, you know, that are fated to get together at the end, um are thrown together improbably and they hate each other initially but eventually come to understand each other. In this, um, they're not really thrown together, they just kind of start dating, but they both confess to each other that they're not really into relationships, but they keep going on these dates and it's not very clear why they're going on them. Um and it's not even really clear that they're attracted to each other either. I mean, well, he's Billy's lot- clearly attracted to Aaron, but, you know, cause he's hot, but then, you know, other than that, it's like, what's Aaron doing?
1: They don't have a lot in common. And, you know, I just, I just feel like, look, I mean, there are things I liked about Bros, right? I thought that these sort of, ske- there were some like family guy style cutaways, these sort of, yes. sketches, these parodies of, of various uh, things in the, in the culture that are either, either gay or trying to cater to a gay audience. And I thought those were um, really funny.
0: And, and and there was a, you know, there are these board meetings that take place uh, behind the scenes at the LGBT museum where everyone's trying to like, you know, advocate for their own particular, you know, uh, uh, role in the gay community. And, and these things are very funny and very on the nose in terms of, you know, if you've ever served on a board like this, that it's very, it's very true to life.
1: Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't, but I thought all that stuff was super funny and sharp. And interesting to watch, you know, and and, and uh, I just felt like the relationship stuff, which is eighty five percent of the movie, a lot of it was really fell flat. Like they take a trip to Provincetown, and I, you know, Harvey Firestein is owns the air the B and B they stay in, and he was completely wasted. Um, and I, I got like- the
0: feeling that they would have cut that scene if Harvey Firestein were not in it, but because they got Harvey Firestein, they're like, we have to use this.
1: That, that felt really flat in fact the, and the whole you know and then there's that long beach confession that uh, billy eichner makes to his lover at the beach where they like all of a sudden for one for the, the music stops the camera stops moving and he just talks and talks and it just, he feels like he's complaining that no one appreciates him you know and this is you know and it felt very autobiographical and i'm thinking like billy billy eichner yes he's never been a big movie star before but he's quite successful <laughs> You know, he's a highly successful YouTube show. He was on Parks and Rec. Yeah,
0: and and he's a white gay man living in New York City who seems to get a lot of action. So, what exactly are we supposed to feel sorry for him for? I mean, it's not there. There seems to be this like
1: even the character. Uh,
0: yeah, the character.
1: Yeah, much less the actor. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he just goes on Grinder, says, "Hey, what's up?" And then ten ten minutes later, he's getting a blowjob or giving one. Or both or whatever. I don't, it doesn't, it, you know, and th- there was some funny stuff about the hookup culture. Like when they're at the Christmas party and they hook up with this dude and then this fourth guy, this little fourth guy shows up and he's like clawing into the, the sex when obviously nobody wants him there. I mean, that was, that was funny, you know? And see, I, I
0: didn't like that scene. I felt that, you know, you can always ask that person to leave, but they acted like he was being annoying. But in fact, you can really just say to this person, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like, it's not like someone forces you to have group sex
1: i mean as a as Just in a <laughs> as, as a married man who a straight married man who uh he's been married for you know more than twenty years i, I wouldn't even know where to begin like with the <laughs> etiquette or something like that I'd be like what what miracle has god bestowed upon me this day <laughs> you know it's like it so you know so i you know so i wasn't you know i couldn't like Gauge the verisimilitude ver- of any of it, but I, I, you know, I did find like a lot of the. I felt like the conversations between um, Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane they just kind of went around in a circle, and we kept having the same story beats over and over again.
0: And it was trying so hard not to be your typical rom com that it wasn't really quite clear what it was, um, and you know, it was hard to get invested in the storyline since the storyline was just trying to be trying to not be something as opposed to to be something. And I think with a classic rom-com, um, a lot of schmaltz is forgiven because the two leads have chemistry with each other. That's why Julia Roberts had such a stranglehold on movie stardom for so long because she just kind of had this chemistry with all of her co-stars. Um, I did not feel anything for Aaron and Bobby. Um, they just kind of... They were reasonably attractive people, um, but, you know, I didn't really care whether or not they got together or not.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it felt a little flat. I would say the best stuff that Bros does is the, you know, it it, it does this sort of revisionist uh, and somewhat radical take on American history from a queer perspective, um, which is a completely different movie uh, than, than than the romantic comedy that was advertised. I thought that stuff was all super interesting, but it's like, that's, hmm. that's just sort of background radiation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, there is bros, the latest, uh, attempt by Judd Apatow to make a star, um, out of someone in this case, it's Billy Eichner. It is, it is, uh, I, I wouldn't say I don't recommend it. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, it's certainly watchable and, and it's an interesting film, but, um, you know, it just doesn't. I don't think it quite achieves exactly what it sets out set out to do.
0: Yeah, I had high hopes for it, but I have to say I was very disappointed. And so was my boyfriend.
1: And, and so is your boyfriend. And my wife. My wife loved it. <laughs> she, she thought, <laughs> thought it
0: was, well gay guys are her jam. <laughs>
1: thought, yeah, right. She thought it was fabulous, and I was arguing it. She's like, "You're just jealous of Billy like her. I'm like, "Well, okay, maybe a little." But <laughs> that—that's—but but, but I'm able to see past my envy of other people's success if, if the movie is good. <laughs> right. And Bros is, is eh, it's not so good. Anyway, Matthew, uh, it's been great talking to you this week and uh, we will catch up with you soon.
0: Great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Is a young old man
1: With only a dream And my I- Alright, thanks Matthew Ehrlich Bros is now airing in theaters nationwide Matthew also talked to me about Blonde the Marilyn Monroe film that's mostly on Netflix although you could see it at selected theaters if you wanted to and also thanks to Sharon Vane and Michael Washburn for doing a left-right-center roundtable on trends and censorship what a great discussion that was I'm glad you've been a part of it I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and gay romantic comedies and bad movies about Marilyn Monroe. We will talk to you next week. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Bookhouse, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to The Bookhouse Milburn, dot com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. The Bookhouse Milburn